You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgo. The bars in Ireland were closed due to the pandemic exactly one year ago today. My guest today talks eloquently about the effects of that lockdown has had on people in tourism in Ireland. We haven't been able to travel the last year, but hearing my guests share their stories of travel has helped. Every week, they confirm my belief that travel can be a life-affirming and even life-changing experience. To prove that point, I could not have a better guest this week, the Queen of Ireland himself, Rory O'Neill. Or you might know him better as the revolutionary drag queen, Panty Bliss. In his mother's words, Rory has always been his own man and woman. And now a national treasure after he became a cultural lightning rod during the successful 2015 marriage equality referendum. He talks about the travels that shaped him the most as a person which shines a light on why travel is so important, especially for an island country like Ireland. Travel opens our country to the world and ideas of how a modern society can be run are brought back by travellers, making our people and country a better and much more fun place to live. I look forward to sharing the places and trips now that influenced Rory's life, including South of France, London, Trans-Siberian Railway, Tokyo, Sydney, just to name a few of the places. So Rory, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. The reason why I originally reached out to you is because I was I saw um, up on social media a comment you had been on TV and you're, I'm a publican and you were the first person that actually that I heard, you know, talking and, and saying, you know, this concept of hospitality being expendable and the idea that 70% of the population are saving because I'm, I do a slot every week on tip FM and I'm all, and I'm always going, you know, you can use that money that you've been saving to do this trip, but in the back of my head going, what money, (laughs) you know? I have like an irrational thing about it. This is like, sometimes I'll see, you know, a friend of mine got a new fireplace recently. <laughs> He's putting up pictures of his new fireplace. Or I saw this woman, I like, it's during lockdown, so she clearly didn't just come out of Brown Thomas, but she looked like she just coming out of Brown Thomas. She had these big bags with fancy pillows in them, you know, fancy cushions. And I had this irrational, like, sort of annoyance about it. Like, you're buying fancy cushions, <laughs> you know. Um, exactly. But it was lovely that you said it because it's important that people hear that. I mean, I was saying it because it was annoying me that it, that it wasn't being discussed much. But I, I also kind of just assumed that everybody knew it, but it turns out that everybody didn't know it. And I was a little annoyed because although I feel that people know that technically, I don't think they feel that. And so the discussion was always, you know, our industries were always being presented as just this problem that had to be fixed. And the problem was they had to close us. And as soon as that decision was made and, you know, all the pubs were closed and venues were closed and all that, it felt like, that's it. Okay, that's not fixed. Let's, you know, let's move on. And I was like, no, that isn't fixed. You know, the the fix that you did has this massive, huge impact on on us. So, although I, I mean, in in fairness, I, I'm glad I live in Europe, and <laughs> because you know, I because you know, obviously, I know a lot of gay bars and all of that around the world. See, for example, a very well known one in San Francisco recently. You know, they have to be doing like online telethon fundraiser things because they aren't getting anywhere near the kind of support that, that, that we're getting, you know, to help us attempt to struggle to the end of this. Oh. And even as you said, it's that little irrational thing where, 
you know, like we actually closed before the Paddy's Day because we knew it was the right thing to do in our yes, nightclub. Really, because yeah. we said it is the right thing, but then it's also the part where you go. Yeah. Oh, and that's also, you know. I was trying to be super clear about that anytime anybody asked me about it, that I wasn't arguing against the restrictions. I understand why they're there and I understand why we're closed. You know, I'm not some sort of COVID denier, <laughs> yeah. but I feel that, you know, the, 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 the huge sacrifice that we've been asked to make on behalf of everybody has pretty much just been ignored to an extent and certainly underappreciated. And my attitude is, you know, no matter what the situation or how long this goes on, the other 70% of the population should have to take some financial pain if necessary to support the 30% who've been asked to just give up everything. So it was just like, like in so many of these things, it was this small grain of a sense of unfairness about it that, that annoyed me. I'd like to talk because the reason why I started doing the podcast was to not be thinking about things like COVID and to kind of think of happy memories of past travels. And I loved you sent me some uh, little bit of information about past trips. So I'm looking forward to going through this with you because you know, you've had uh, some great trips through your life. So the first one that I'd like to talk about is France, because I talked about countries or trips that influenced your life. So the first one is France as a teenager. You used to go there? Yeah, when I was a teenager, um, I would go to uh, the Basque region, to this tiny village called Sustan, um, sort of near Biritz, um, and work on a maize farm there in the summer, castrating maize um well maize plants are planted male and female and they have to cross pollinate and but then you have to are are you able to stop them whatever it is but anyway we would have to castrate the male part of the plant um and you know so france is the first you know foreign country where i was certainly where i was spending time alone and basically first foreign country really i mean i've been to my uncle my cousins in england and that's about it um what age were you um, well, I guess started around 16, so 16, 17, 18, 19, sort of. Um, so I spent the first part of the summer living on a farm, you know, in tents, you know, little f- farmer and, you know, his wife would, you know, cook this paella and, um, and then we'd be in the fields from dawn till quite late and, you know, and then drinking in the little village in the evening and that. And then when the season finished, you know, the summer wasn't over, I would then, and this sounds absolutely insane now, but I would just hitchhike around France and mostly just head down towards Montpellier and take whatever lifts came. So it could take a long you know, time and stop along the way. And I had the tent and it seems insane now, teenager <laughs> hitchhiking down through France. And there were, when I think about it, some pretty sort of scary incidents, you know, or weird incidents along the way. And, you know, I'd almost no money. I mean, working on a maize farm doesn't pay you anything. But as long as I had enough to get as far as Montpellier, because then I would uh, work on the beach for a few weeks selling, you know, ice creams and Cokes and you know, beignet au palm and all of that. So, you know, it was very much mad 1980s um, stuff that was like, you know, my parents were fine about it. I mean, they knew I was hitchhiking, I guess, but maybe I didn't sort of give them the full <laughs> details or something. But, um... You know, it was it was super fun. I was young. It was all new to me. My French got pretty good over the years. Down in Montpellier, the beach was you know, really hard work, but sort of idyllic too. And it all felt 
just you know so exotic to me in a way and and of course and it was all sort of in, in down in Montpellier, down at the beach, it was all sort of run by your know, local shysters, you know, who would like drive up with these vans. And you had these two giant ice boxes, an ice box in each hand and a basket thing around your neck. So the beginning of the shifts, you know, it was heavy. It was hard going. And you'd have like peanuts and you know, cacao, beignet au pomme, boisson fraîche, cacao, choo choo. That's why you shout on the beach all day. And so you'd sell the nuts and that out of this basket. And then in the two things, in one you had like cans, Coke and all that. And the other one you had, um, uh, you know, ice creams or whatever. And you just slog up and down the beach, you know, all day. But the more you sold, the lighter they got. And then as they emptied, then you had to sort of make the decision. Do you kind of keep it easy or do you go back to the van and fill up again? And then it becomes really difficult again. And then I had my little tricks because the, uh, the ice cream one would have dry ice, you know, dry ice in it. To keep the ice cream super cold but so if you saw a particularly crowded part of the beach you could stop before you get there you'd open the drinks one and you'd knock off a bit of you know uh, knock off into the dry ice and drop it into the drinks one into the water and that creates all the white smoke you know very you know then you close on the lids and then you march into that middle and then you sort of make a big huff of a noise about sitting down on one of the ice boxes, and then you open up the ice box where you know all you've created all the icy smoke, and it pours out, and you pull out a can, <laughs> and then you'd sell you know quite a few cans in that little area. And then at the end of the right towards the end of the summer, I then hitch over to Cannes, where years previously this French girl had come to you know to our house in the summer to learn English and. We, we had sort of stayed in contact and her family turned out to be very wealthy and they had like a summer holiday apartment thing in Cannes, you know, spend a week with them in, in, in beautiful, swanky luxury before going home. So that was your kind of, was that your introduction to hospitality? You know, that was, and performing, wasn't it? On the beach. <laughs> well, there's probably more performing happening around the campfire, around the farm <laughs> some nights, whatever. I also lost my sort of, my, my lady virginity on that, farm in a tent to um, an older girl from Leeds who basically demanded her wicked way with me. (laughs) (laughs) And were you, um, had you come out at that stage? No. um, No. Maybe by the very end, no, but I was like 16. No, I I came out in college just sort of as that sort of period of my life, I guess, was sort of ending. But I sort of fell secretly in love loads of times there, you know, with other beach sellers or, I fell in love with this gypsy boy, um, you know, from the Basque region who, who took me to Lourdes in his beat up old car and everything. Um, it was all very, you know, romantic and wild, but, um, So the next, the next one that I want to go on to is, um, London. So yeah, you went there during college, college summers. That must be amazing. I did. So, um, well, I made the first, you know, couple of college summers, I was still going to France. And then, um, I guess it was after I'd come out and all of that. And my older brother, or one of my older brothers, is also gay. And at that time, he lived in London. And uh, so I would go there. And when was in that? The, uh, in the, when did I go to college? 80s. I think I went to college in 86. So this is probably 87, 88, something like that. So, and I you stayed with him. Um, and for me, you know, London was the first sort of ex- experience of... You know, I was only there for three months of the summer or whatever. But, yeah, you know, I was sort of living in a big, big, you know, international metropolis sort of. 
um, and everything that comes with that. And because, of course, you know, Dublin is a great city, but you know, in the 1980s, it was pretty provincial and grim and grey and all of that. So, and, and my brother lived in a um, nice part of London, you know, so just to sort of see the, 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 you know, the money around and all of that at the time. And of course, I was a young guy who'd just come out and my older brother was gay. So, you know, to have this huge, you know, vibrant, you know, massive gay scene, um, you know, to run around after work. Cause I worked in a restaurant in Covent Garden. And then, you know, after work would go out until all hours dancing in these giant clubs and everything. It was all, just, you know, a revelation to me from, you know, provincial Dublin at the time and everything, but super exciting. And, and it's really where I first got a taste for, you know, nightclubs and weird performance and all of that sort of thing. Because I never, you know, we didn't really have that in Dublin at the time. We didn't really have nightclubs in Dublin at the time. You just had restaurants that at nighttime would sell you wine and play music. So just all of that was a real, you know, eye opener and sort of game changer for me. Yeah. I, I um, recently watched, you know, It's a Sin, which was a powerful, powerful show. Yeah. You know, for me, you know, for, you know, kind of open my eyes because, you know, it's like a world that I didn't know. And, you know, that was that time, wasn't it? Where that was it based. Was, yeah. So that was all super familiar to me. I mean, the, the characters in that show would have been about five years older than me, you know, going by the birthday party they had and working it out. But all of the stuff around that was super familiar to me. The soundtrack even and the sort of weirdness of being that age and experiencing this first, you know, flush of your young sexuality, and especially after just after coming out and you're running around, but in the background, there's this hum of something horribly deadly. And, and it was more, you know, I think um, it's funny because we're having this, this conversation here in the middle of the, the pandemic. And, you know, there was a, a feeling sort of among, you know, gays, certainly of my age, that, you know, when this all started, we're kind of looking at each other going, you know, this isn't our first pandemic, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and the first one was much scarier because everyone who caught it died. So it was much more terrifying. The funerals was very much part of your thing, you know, for a long time. And so all of that, that was, was something very that, that was something that me. came up in it, you, you know, the... Because normally, you know, we, when you're in your 20s or whatever, that isn't something that you... Uh, yeah, you don't... Really, you know, well, you don't normally even think about that much. And if it is, it's because you're going to your granny's funeral or something. And, and you, know, you said you, in a way that you learned stuff you didn't know from much that. You know, so did younger gays. Younger gays don't really get it either. Because they didn't, you know, experience that. I mean, nowadays, there's really absolutely no need for anyone to die from HIV because there's great treatments and they're... Excellent. I'm like, I, I mean, I've been living with HIV for 25 years. You know, I take one pill in the morning with my breakfast and that's it. Forget about it. You know, I, I'm, I'm as healthy as anybody else. So there was just so many sides to all of that because not only were young people having to deal with death and all that, you know, the gay community was also having to sort of come together to fight this thing and to fight for treatments and research and all that stuff because it was being ignored by everybody because nobody wanted to talk about it. You know, famously Ronald Reagan didn't even mention the word AIDS on, uh, might get the figure wrong, but you know, till many thousands of Americans had already died from it. Margaret Thatcher never wanted it discussed. She was against those ads that went on the radio and the television. She, you know, she didn't think it should be, you know, it, publicly discussed. It was just all this ignorance and fear around everything, which made dealing with a thing where all your friends were dying uh, just so much extra difficult. And I think in Ireland, 
I think everywhere, the sort of general population was shielded from so much of it because it wasn't discussed and all that. But in Ireland, especially because at the time homosexuality was still illegal, you know, all, for all of these reasons, um, I think people, I think a lot of Irish people even think it sort of as if it like magically skipped Ireland, you know, and, but of course it didn't. Um, but, you know, families hid it from the neighbors and, you know, oh, he died of cancer when he didn't. Um, uh, just gay lives were so hidden then. And so, you know, and their, and their deaths at that time were, extra hidden i mean i think probably most irish people if it hadn't been that vincent hanley's death happened and all of that they probably wouldn't even you know that an irish person died of it so yeah it's a weird sort of dream and what i the thing i liked about the program as well is that it it was one line where the character he was in his deathbed i suppose but he went you know we had great fun and you know what i mean it kind of captured that 80s um feeling as well you know yeah that's a great line i mean and often i think sometimes you hear people you know say that, that that gay people often have a slightly delayed adolescence because in their real adolescence they didn't get to do all of that exploring and then they they eventually you know, they come out at 22 or one or whatever it is and they find their first gay club and they go sort of mental for a while and it is just super fun and is your memory then overall when you look back at the that time in the 80s in, in london it's it's happy memories. Is that your? Oh, it is you know, absolutely. Yeah. It is yeah. I mean, there was this weird, grim, dark thing hanging in, around in the background all the time. But for me personally, um, oh my god, the best time of my life. Um, you know, we're sort of London and those early, even in, back in Dublin around those those times, and you know finding the the weird hidden away gay bar in Dublin and all of that stuff. I mean, I, it was all so exciting and new. And um, I mean, I sometimes wonder, do modern young gay people sort of miss out a little bit on that? Of course, I think it's for everybody, you know, when you're young and it's all new and exciting to you. But you know, back then you really had to make this huge effort just to find another gay person, you know, and even to find out where is there a fucking gay bar and, find, you know, it was really difficult to find them. And then when you did, you had to be sort of have reached the point where you're prepared to say, okay, you fuck all of this. All of this doesn't work for me. And I'm going to, you're know, crossing the threshold of this weird, dingy basement somewhere off Baggett Street, um, you know, and going into the whole secret underground world. And so it had this really super exciting quality. And almost by default, that meant that the other people you met in there were also quite radical in their way of thinking, because they had also had to get to that point. Whereas nowadays, um, you know, brilliantly, um, it isn't such a stretch. You know, get Graham Norton's on the telly and all of that. And, you know, everybody's granny knows where the George is. And, you know, and they're playing bingo with Shirley Temple Bar or whatever. You know, it isn't such a stretch. You know, and I, I see young gays nowadays, you know, they're bringing their ma around on Pride and they're bringing their aunt to bingo and, and all that stuff, which just did not happen in our day. It was all so underground and hidden and sometimes I wonder, are they missing out on some excitement there? Um, <laughs> but obviously I wouldn't go back. So when you left college, you were, you did a very venturous, you went to Tokyo. How did you, what made you go to Tokyo? It's all um, travel writer Paul Thoreau's fault, really. And Balan Robes. Because <laughs> there was two things. I, it used to really annoy me that I, I felt like I was always going to be from Ballon Robe County Mayo and that I was always a small country boy and nothing could ever change that. I'd actually I met this sort of incredibly 
he he died of AIDS, unfortunately, um, many years ago. Um, but he was this like club performer in London. But he was from this you know asshole t- nowhere town in the middle of Australia. But by the time I met him, he was like the most fabulous thing in the whole of London, you know. And and that sort of changed my mindset about that. I kind of thought, oh God, well, you know, Lee is from Ballinrobe, essentially, you know, some Australian version, you know. But that has never defined him and. And so I thought, because actually you can just you can just be whatever you want to be. So there was part of me was that because I just I thought after when I finished college, nineteen eighty nine, I thought I want to go to the biggest one of the biggest cities in the world. And I actually pre internet I had to look that up in a fucking encyclopedia. <laughs> and the biggest cities in the world at the time were Mexico City and Tokyo. And around the same time, um, a friend of mine, Helen from Ennistime in County Clare. Helen and I had both read this book by the travel writer Paul Threw called Riding the Iron Rooster. And it's about train journeys in China. And of course, this is 1989. We were reading this. So this is before, just before the wall came down and before the Soviet Union collapsed, before China started opening up. You know, so this book seems so exotic and so like another world. And a, and a large part of the book was about um, the Trans-Siberian Express going to China on the Trans-Siberian Express. So Helen was was the one who was like, let's do trains. <laughs> let's do the Trans-Siberian Express. And I was like, and let's then go to Tokyo because we'll, you know. And at the time, Japan was having its first you know, bubble economy. So, um, you know, we'd heard you could get work there. You know, forgot that far and all that. So we decided before, before we before we get to Tokyo. Can I ask? Yeah. Will we talk? Can I ask you about the, that trend? Did you actually do that? Yes. So, so 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 our plan was we well, were going to go to Tokyo, but we were going to do it by train. That's you know, wow. We, we were we were twenty years old. 20, I, I'm wow. six, sixty eight, and this would be nineteen eighty nine. So um, twenty one years old. So we decided this was going to be our big life's adventure. We were just finishing college. And what's sort of hard to explain to people now, nowadays is this is all before the internet. So how do you even get a ticket for the Trans-Siberian Express in the days before the internet and before the Soviet Union collapsed and, and all of that? Like, it seems like this impo- impossible task, but of course at the time, what you had to do was read books. And like, <laughs> and we read some book that suggested something about uh, Hungary and then we, you know, wherever, we heard a rumor that there was a, a university professor in Budapest, Hungary, who could get you a ticket for the Trans-Siberian Express. And being 21 and full of, you know, whatever you are full of at that age, we thought, let's do that. So we, you know, we, apart from a boat to England and, I, and a boat from England to France, um, and a, a late, much later on, a boat from China to Japan. You know, we did it all by train. So we we went first to uh, Hungary, and we were only able to do that because it was just after the Berlin Wall had come down. So you were able to get a train to Budapest, but at the, but when you got off of the train in Budapest, you know, it's not. I, I actually I was actually in, in Budapest last year. Um, you know, working. And I was just like amazed, you know, at how different it is because when we got off the train in, in, in Budapest, um, you know, there was just like 
nothing. Desolation. I mean, Soviet nothingness. Um, and old ladies, you know, since the wall started to crumble. And so this is the Berlin Wall was down. Um, and the Soviet Union was, you know, the Iron Curtain was slowly crumbling, but none of that had been resolved. But there was, the, you know, poverty was so bad at the time. And so when you got off the train, there was just all these old ladies standing there offering anyone who got off the train someplace to stay. And so we went and stayed, you know, in an old lady's living room. But um, so we went to Hungary. You know, my memories are even pretty vague at this stage. How? But we were there for a few weeks trying to find this possibly non-existent uh, university professor who could get you the ticket. Um, but turned out he did exist. Wow. Um, and we did track him down. And he basically, basically all he did was he told us, you know, where, how to go and buy a ticket to Moscow. And then he just gave us a piece of paper with something written on it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we didn't have the internet, so we couldn't Google it or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so we got on a train to Moscow with no visas, like nothing. But our big saving grace that we didn't know at the time, I have to let the cat in. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Leave me in suspense. <laughs> So it was a dramatic moment in the story when you when when the cat. Sorry, I'm giving you editing comes. issues there. Yeah, we had no visas or anything, but we were too stupid, really, to or young and naive to really let that put us off. And what turned out to be the thing that made it possible and saved is that the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain was crumbling. And so when you were, we were going through borders, they weren't giving a shit about two Irish, you know, 20-year-olds with bad haircuts. You know, it just wasn't, you know, half the border guards weren't even doing their jobs. You know, you could give them Marlboro cigarettes and you could get away with anything. Um, they were all in desperate economic circumstances and the the whole apparatus of the Soviet Union was collapsing around us and we just looked out, essentially. And so we got to Moscow and... You know, got out of the train station there, which is even weirder than Budapest because it literally, you know, on the streets, you you know, if you got out of a strange city now, you, you'd kind of look, where's the built-up area? Or where does there look like there's more signs and, you know, neon or whatever? Whereas in 1989, 1990 in Moscow, there were no street signs. There were no, you know, there was no economy in that sense, public economy. So... You know, you got out and you couldn't tell where was the city center or whether you were in it or not in it or, you know, it's just like nothingness. But we had that piece of paper. And of course, people were kind of afraid to talk to you anyway. Not, I, I assume that, you know, they wouldn't have had English. But there also, there was that fear quality still at the time in Moscow. Um, so we, you know, gave this man, who <laughs> we hoped was a taxi driver, this piece of paper. And he just drove us to a totally nondescript office block. And we were paying, you know, even the taxi driver in Marlboro cigarettes and nylon tights. They were the things that everyone had told us to bring. Um, and you, we went into this totally, it looked like an apartment building. There's definitely nothing to distinguish it from any other building, no signage or whatever. In there to the right apartment where there was just people at desks, women at desks, writing things, whatever. And we handed one of them the, this piece of paper Um and they hand wrote a train ticket, you know, like one of those, you know, it looks like something from the 1940s, like a little book of paper with, you know, they hand write in everything onto it. And then off we went to the train station with the taxi driver 
Um, and we were let on to the Trans-Siberian Express. And again, no visas. And, you know, and we were going to be going through Mongolia. We were going to be going right across the USSR, you know, all the way through Siberia and everything. No visas, nothing. Um, and so we got on. And then we used, we spent eight days, nine days on the Trans-Siberian Express, which we just, you know, maybe once or twice a day would stop momentarily and, you know, um, peasants or whatever would, you know, come up to the windows with bags of apples and, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we went, we had to go through border crossings into Inner Mongolia and eventually into China and all the way down. We stayed in Beijing a couple of weeks and then eventually more trained down to Shanghai, stayed there for a while and then eventually got a boat to Japan. That was some way to go to that was some way to go to Japan. It was wasn't it? yeah, and I have like a kind of a diary and everything from the time, and we were both out of our college. I think we were like lots of drawings in it and everything. Yeah, like there's nothing like train journeys. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I still love train journeys. The, the, they are just a different way to travel, and you get to see things, and you also get a sense of you know the distance you're you're going, and especially when you go to sleep and you wake up and it's still going by but the landscape has utterly changed somehow you know you know looking back you know we were so lucky a to be so stupid and so naive and yet to get away with all of that just because of the time and what was politically happening um but also i'm really glad and thankful that i got to see china and mongolia and even you know the soviet union just before everything changed because like I said, I was in Shanghai and Beijing, I want to say last year, but it can't have been. So it must have been the year before last. Um, and it's just so utterly different. Like Shanghai has this whole, like imagine looking out from Galway Bay and seeing just a wall of giant skyscrapers. I mean, that is what has happened in, in Shanghai. A place where when I was there, you didn't even know there was land, or if there was, it was a tiny amount. You know, they've reclaimed or whatever. They and they, it's suddenly, it's like, it's like looking at the skyline of New York, and it didn't even exist, you know, at the time. Uh, you know, because where you're standing is what was old Shanghai, and it's still there. And across from it, you know, as far as I can see, it's just, it's, you're looking at Manhattan, and it just didn't even exist. Uh, like, I have a, such a clear memory where we stayed in Shanghai, um, on the ground floor, there was a room about the size of my living room. And it was, and it was kind of quite a fuss at the time, uh, the first stock exchange. And it consisted of a room the size of my living room with like a few men with blackboards. <laughs> you know, and now thrilled and grateful to have seen that just in time before all of that was obliterated. Um yeah. When I was in college, I spent a summer around 91 in uh, Munich and we went to Prague for a couple of days and yeah. I got that little, you know, it just, and it was like, like you describe, you know, I remember being in an amazing, we went to an amazing restaurant and the meal was unbelievable, but it came to like a couple of euro, you know, yeah. a couple of quid. And I remember getting a taxi home and some of the guys were arguing over the taxi fare. And I was like, lads, we're arguing over five pence versus 10 pence. I know. 
That, and that always happens so quickly. You just totally forget you're, you're getting all stressed out because you think you're being ripped off for five pence. Exactly. You know, yeah. yeah. You went to Tokyo and that is probably one of the most influential um, periods of your life then, really, isn't it? Am I oh, right yeah, in totally. That? Yeah. I mean, I guess it was probably, it was 1990, I guess, by the time we arrived in Tokyo. You know, you, you can't imagine someplace more different, you know, to Dublin or whatever. And at the time, they were having, you know, their bubble economy where money was falling out of the sky. So it was relatively easy uh, when you were there to get a job teaching English. And then once you were in the system, you were sort of in the system. And so, um, you know, of course, when we arrived, you're absolutely broke and all of that. But, you know, you, when you're young, you just manage somehow. And then I ended up staying there for four and a half years. and. Yeah, it was certainly the most transformative, you know, experience, I guess, you know, of my life in many ways. Um, I had been doing some small amount of you know, drag performing before I went um, in our college and that. But in Tokyo was where, like, I, I turned into some sort of nascent career. I would swear Tokyo is where, you know, I had my wildest fun, got all of that youthful, chaotic, creative energy out of me where I made absolute lifelong friends that I'm still super close with to this day. I loved every single minute of it. Still love Japan. Um, yeah, no, it, it changed I mean, my life entirely. So at that time, what was, um, there, what was their attitude towards gay people? Like, what was it legal? Was it pretty open or? You know, a lot of the Asian countries have attitudes to homosexuality that it's hard for us to sort of explain or understand. Um, so just taking Japan, um, Japan is a weird one. So like if you went to Tokyo now, which is still one of the world's biggest cities, and the, 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 the gay scene, for example, is very sort of ghettoized. It's in this one particular area. And it has, I don't know, let's say, or certainly in my day, it probably had 40 or 50 bars. But the vast majority of those bars literally can take, 15 customers maximum. You know, they're tiny, but it's super vibrant and all of that. But, but in other words, a very, very small scene considering the size of that city, which, which, which might make you think, oh, it's probably very, that sounds like it must be very, very intolerant to gays, but that isn't exactly true either. Um, they, they, they have a, a, first of all, they have a very different attitude to say to, to transgender people than would have here. You know, they're very much part of the culture Cross-dressing is a sort of a high art as well as a low one. You know, there are transgender people on television, males playing female roles in the highest, highest art forms. You're performing art forms and um, no theater and all that stuff is, is just absolutely standard. Um, and, you know, men, straight or gay, you know, become super, super famous, um, super, uh, you know, um, culturally revered for playing female roles. Um, so there's that going on. But the biggest, hugest difference is the, they absolutely separate uh, sex from your life in a way. So, um, which they do on a number of I issues. So they have this way of sort of compartmentalizing things that seems odd to us at first. And they do that with sex as well. And so Japanese people will have no problem with, 
a man having sex with another man or, you know, going to some one of their hosty clubs. They have these clubs, you know, where there's kind of a, a sex bargain involved. Absolutely no issue with that because the sex act to them is not moral. It's not... Um, they don't have the same concept of sin that we have. They don't believe in sin like we believe in sin. So there is no moral objection to you doing whatever you want to do. And which is why they're probably, you know, we're, you know, you often read about their kind of weird, what we see as kinky business stuff, like whatever, selling schoolgirl knickers out of machines and all this kind of weird stuff. Because to them, that is not any kind of moral or social issue that is just However, the social um, issue around living a gay life is massive, like much bigger than ours. So you can be, as long as you get married, have the you know 1.4 kids, you know, stay on the company ladder, you know, work your way up in your suit every day, then they do not care, you know, what you might be sticking your willy into on a Friday night or something. It's not, and that's, that's, there are separate things as far as they're concerned. But if you don't get married, if you had a boyfriend and all that stuff, that is so beyond, you know, the, 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 the socially acceptable scale of things there, that that is a massive pressure. And that is why um, people who are, you know, fully, you know, embracing what we think of as a gay identity are, are fewer. There are millions of them, of course. It's a massive country and it's you know, generally a super safe country and all of that. So there wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't generally be getting like beaten up on the street or anything like that. But the social pressure to conform, and that includes getting married, having kids, having a wife, even if it's, you know, all a front, the social pressure to conform in those socially acceptable ways is much greater than here. And so when you were in, to, like, were you it, do, doing gri- drag in a bar? Were you, like, is that when you oh, started? No, mostly in clubs, you know. Um, in clubs, from, okay. from, from sort of the small, tiny ones in the gear to, to, to huge, you know, gigantic ones that were much more mixed or, or whatever. Um, like, you know, in Japan, it's very safe and people have different attitudes to all these things. So you could run into any straight club in Japan dressed dressed in drag and not, you know, there'd be no fear about it. You know, um, so we did, I, I actually, so when I first arrived there, one of the very first people I met was an American guy who used to do drag in Atlanta, Georgia. And we formed a kind of double act on our you know, our USP was that we were the foreign drag queen duo. Um, and so we, you know, performed in the little bars and the gay scene and that, but but our real money we made working in these kind of, you know, at the time there was just so much money in Tokyo. So even the clubs were incredible. And the one that we had the longest, you know, relationship with where we worked every week for years, you know, it was seven stories, gigantic industrial building. The seventh floor was the VIP area. And when the lifts opened, you were on a traditional Japanese suburban street. And the the perfectly built Japanese suburban house. And in the house, there was, you know, granddad, mom, uh, the, 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 the two kids, 
you know, all that. You know, that was the kind of money they had to create this whole cinematic set on the seventh floor of this huge industrial building just for the kind of VIPs, you know. And then there's six floors of insanity going on downstairs. You could get your hair done in the nightclub. There was a whole beauty parlor with, you know, hairdressers and everything. So there was a lot of money at the time. And, um, and you know, we were weird foreign drag queens. So, you know, we did fine out of it. <laughs> it must have been, a, like, I mean, a great experience. And then... Did you come back? Did you bring that back to Ireland then? Was that the... Kind of. Um, I left eventually, you know, for about four and a half years. Partly, I think I just, there was a kind of a feeling, okay, right, I've, you know, I've come to, I've done this, it's great. I mean, I absolutely loved, loved every minute of it and I still love Japan. Um, but there is always this kind of slightly lingering sense that, you know, you'll always be looked at as a foreigner just because people will... St- see you on the train and just assume, you know, so much of British foreign, which, which I often think about in all these discussions about, you know, black people in Ireland or, you know, you know the newer communities in Ireland, Asian people, whatever, you know, that the, 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 they must obviously feel that too. And, and, and that gets wearing or something. There's something about that, you know, no matter how good your Japanese becomes, whatever, you'll always be the, a foreign guy or the foreign guy even if you become the foreign guy who speaks perfect japanese you'll still be the foreign guy and even though japan is this modern outward looking country and everything it's still so different and so insular in some other ways that you 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 definitely feel quite outsidey sometimes so i think maybe that was part of it but then also my two closest friends they're also leaving tokyo for different reasons around the same time and i was just like mm. so um, i came home here plan was just to visit for a while and then I thought I was going to go to Paris or something. But that was because, in my head, Dublin was still the Dublin that I had left in 1989. But when I came back, it was 1995. And it was the early boom years. Everything was changing. People were coming into Ireland for the first time ever, rather than running out of it. Um, there was a sense of sort of excitement and change and possibility. Homosexuality had been decriminalized. Uh, you could now get a, go to a real nightclub. They changed the licensing so you could go to a nightclub with a dance floor and DJ and a beer. <laughs> you get a beer. Um, all that stuff had happened. You know, the city was changing in front of your eyes. They were building, you know, apartment buildings. The Lewis was being built. It just felt very different. It felt like it was for the first time ever, really. It felt like, you know, maybe I could live here. Maybe I could you know, do the things that I wanted to do and make a living here. So, yeah, I just started promoting club nights and, you know, and do, doing crazy parties and stupid events and everything. What, and, and and there was no real club drag tradition here at all. We had a small, you know, cabaret tradition. So there was like Mr. Pussy had been around since the 1970s. Whereas the, 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 the thing that I did sort of become involved with through London and Tokyo was, you know, the wild, crazy club draggery nuttery. And there was no tradition of that in Ireland at all. So when I first came back and I needed to get some sort of steady kind of you know, work, thankfully a friend of mine owned a, a store and I sold jeans in the meantime. But while I, I started getting dressed up in crazy drag every night and going to a different nightclub every night, trying to find ones where this seems like, you know, a scene I could work with. And the one I found you know, most suited was, it was called Strictly Handbag. It ran for 15 years mm-hmm. or something. And it was, you know, it was quite mixed. So I went to lots of clubs just and just made myself the sort of the life and soul of the crazy life and soul of the party. And I picked that, that, that was the one that was in the kitchen nightclub, which had just opened, you know, the U2 associated one. 
And, and I went there a few weeks in a row, made myself the funnest, craziest person there. And then I said, pay me and I'll come here every week. And that's how I got the first steady drag job. 25 years later or whatever I'm still here. <laughs> okay, so the fifth and final place that you picked was Sydney. Like when I, when I went to Sydney in 2000, I used to live up the road from... Uh, was that the, the Olympics the, year? Yeah, it was actually. You're right. And yeah, it was because that was a great time to go to Sydney. Yeah. I remember we had friends who were, my wife is from Meath and she had friends who lived in Sydney who, um, the route of the gay parade, they had an apartment and, um, she had loads of gay friends and we went to a party during the gay parade and all her, everyone was dressed up. Yeah. And I loved it. The energy. Yeah. I have been in that parade on the Irish community's float seven times, I think think seven or eight years so I, i've been going to australia most years for maybe the 10 more or more years or something with my shows and that and then about maybe 10 years ago or something um the there's a little irish kind of gay club you know for members of the irish community and they hooked up with um there's a girl from Dublin who's not gay, but she's one of those. We knew her when she was in Dublin and she just knew all the gays. She was one of those girls. And she ended up um, moving to Australia and she works at the Irish, M- the Irish consulate in Sydney. And she, to get them to uh, give some funding to the Irish commu- gay Irish community there to put a float in the parade. And, and you'll know, but people here don't really know. Um, their Sydney Mardi Gras it's not like here. It is massive. Like it's a huge cultural event. It is broadcast live on television. Um, it is it's built up to Patrick's parade, isn't it? It's here, much you know, bigger, bigger than that. Like there are true, millions true. of people on the street. And also because it's at, one of the things that makes it so special is it's at nighttime because they want to do when it's cool. The weather is cooler, you know, for the people in it. So it has this look that no other kind of pride parade in the world ever has. And it's so enormous. It takes hours and hours and hours to pass. And so, you know, all of the gay groups and everything in the whole of, of Australia have to apply to get a space, you know, because it would go on for weeks, you know, otherwise. So even just being allowed to have a load is a big deal. And the money and the creativity of those is, you know, it's incredible. It's hard to explain to non-Australians how major a cultural event it has become. Because, you know, at some point, the government decided to pour money into it. It's for everyone. So there are millions of people on the street. And so when the Irish, the Irish government then ended up being sort of, because of this or another, being the first country to sort of sponsor their own float in the, in the parade. Now, the Irish gay group had had, you know, smaller floats in the parade years before, but then there'd been a long gap. But on that first year, and um, delighted to be part of it, because I was there doing my show anyway, so they were like, come on. Um, it won the award for the best, you know, float. And and even that is a big deal there. Like, it's a, it's a proper award, you know. Um, and so the Irish government, you know, the council has done it ever since. And since then, many, many other countries have followed because it's a great opportunity um, because it's such a platform I- I there. I remember when I, w- when, I was, when I was at that parade at that party, you know, it was like, it was like, well, yeah, it's on the route, you know. And um, that's a huge deal you know, like in a Sydney box. to live on exactly. the route. Is a big like, deal. It was like yeah. a box in Wimbledon, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, yeah. But yeah, no, it's, you're, you're right. The, the, every, anybody who lives along the parade route and has a good view, you know, that's very 
valued and they have to have a party and um, I used to live, when I was there, I used to live at the top of Oxford Street. I used to go to that bar, you know, the Albury, very famous. Because yes, what name. I loved, what I loved, I used to go there. I loved, I loved, you know, if someone came from Ireland, you know, give them a flavour of Australia. And it was such a great, you know, that atmosphere, you, you felt quite open, you know, straight people or couples or, yeah. and also seen drag shows because that was kind of my first time seen them, well, you know, properly. Well, they, they have a great attitude to drag and they kind of have their own style, which you kind of got a sense of through Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That yeah. But Australians also have this, Australians are very macho culture. And if you're outside of, you know, the major urban cities, it's super macho, you know, quite conservative in many ways. But because of the massive international success of Priscilla Queen the Desert and all that, they have this you know fun attitude to drag because it's tied up in their in their sort of cultural export to the rest of the world, and so they do, they have a super vibrant drag scene. Australia has its own problems, but I love it. Like you're getting to go there in, in the Irish winter most years, as I used to do. <laughs> And to break up the Irish winter and go to this country where the sun is drenching you, um, where where there's a sort of a, you know, in a sense, a relaxed attitude, you know, to life or whatever, was always such fun and you know, great. But can I, ask, can I ask you just a question, um, something I wonder about, especially during, when, when, when the referendum was on. Do you feel a bit of a pressure having to be, uh, you know, a gay icon, for want of a better word. Do you know what I mean? Does that, do you ever um, feel no, that sometimes a good question, or not? Because the answer is I kind of do. I don't know you know. I am, but I feel this pressure sometimes to be like the perfect gay all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I got into all the things I got into because they were punk and two fingers to everything and discombobulating. And they were sort of a fuck you to convention and all of that. And, and then to suddenly be sort of co-opted, you know, by the establishment in this sort of way and everything. Yeah, sometimes it's, I felt very uncomfortable at times. So I've had to sort of feel my way through it. But there's also been, been just, I, I one of the things that I have absolutely, you know, felt wonderful about and have absolutely no regrets about is, is that stuff with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Irish Aid. Because you know, here's the thing, you know, in Ireland, we just give out about politicians full stop and they're all terrible and they all should get cancer and die. I mean, that's, it's just is so black and white and they're all awful. But, you know, the people who work in the department and especially people who work in Irish aid, they have no political connections. That is what they do. And their jobs is if they're in the, you know, department and their ambassadors is to improve the image of Ireland abroad and to uh, use what power Ireland has to help People in other and the people in Irish Aid, just mind-blowingly incredible, and the stuff that they do, um, and they are there regardless of who is in government and what election happens. You know, that is all just background noise to them. They continue doing the stuff that they're doing. I, I really appreciate you giving me so much time. And a question that I always ask everybody at the end is. If you take four deep breaths and close your eyes and think of your happy place, where would that be and why? Well, it, it's it's a place, but it's not on a geolocation. It's on a dance floor. Um, <laughs> I've missed that in the last year so much, even though I'm kind of too old for it now. But all of my 
you know, creative, fun, energetic, loving life experiences have been on or close to a dance floor. Um, and there's, there's something special about being on, on a dance floor in the right mood. You know, people's inhibitions are down. Um, there's a camaraderie. People don't care whether you're gay, straight, black, white, upside down, or right way around. You know, there's just a, a thing about that. And um, and I always say, you know, when I die, when I die, just cremate me and then sprinkle my ashes on a good dance floor somewhere. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure which one it is. A dance floor is a, it's a psychological space rather than a geographical location. I actually put up some photos on my Instagram last night of um, some gigs, some music gigs. And it just seems like an alien world now. Like seeing, a, you know, the photos are of a packed. My, I, I've done like this, this week, two years ago, I had the darkness doing a gig yeah. in my pub in Clamel. You're kidding me. Yeah. And, it, and it was packed and it just seems like an alien world now, you know? Well, to me, that's one of the big things in the pandemic that got lost is the sort of the concept of, uh, you know, communal joy. You know, we haven't experienced that in a year. To me, that is like one of the, you know, really basic human needs that comes not short, you know, not long after breathing, eating, you know, and, you know, water. Um, Because every culture, every country, every part of the world in every time period we have found ways to have communal joy, music and gigs and even cinema and weddings and parties and all of those things. And in the last year, that has been taken from us. And I don't think that's a small thing. I think that's a really big thing that maybe we never appreciated until it was taken from us. Exactly. And that brings us back to the very start of our conversation about hospitality and bars and nightclubs and all those things being appreciated because what they give to society, you know, because the line I keep telling everybody is um, that, uh, you know, it's going to be the roaring 20s, like that when we go back, can you imagine what it's going to be like? No longer I will hope that, so. You know? And I hope they're roaring in Panty Bar or whatever, you know, I really hope will. so. Yeah. You know? Like, I think like, you know, nobody, if you ask a 90-year-old for their, you know, fun memories, none of those memories are sitting alone at a Zoom screen. You know, that is not what we're going to miss, you know, when we're on our deathbeds. What we're going to miss is hanging out with your mates, you know, dancing, you know, together, um, all of that stuff. So, yeah, I don't think it's a small thing we've lost. I think it's a very big thing we've lost and people have been slow to recognize that. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergal.